Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by USA-primed Frederick's Canvas. Supporting artists for 150 years, primed in Atlanta, Georgia, with the widest variety of primed and unprimed cottons and linens on the market. I've been using Frederick's for a long, long time, and it's always been a great canvas to work on in the studio. You can find Frederick's in your local art store or at frederick'sprintcanvas.com. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden is a company based in upstate New York and is committed to making the best artist materials for artists to make work with. You can get it in just about every art store and online at goldenpaints.com. Austin Wiener is an artist born in Miami, Florida. Austin studied photography at the University of Michigan School of Art and Design and Parsons School of Photography. She's had solo shows including Prenup at the Journal Gallery, Mid-Explosion at Bill Brady Gallery, Wilhart and Naud at Lodge Gallery, and curated the group exhibition We the People in 2016 to raise funds for the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence at WorkArts in Los Angeles. Before moving to LA, Austin worked as a commercial photographer specializing in photojournalism for backstage fashion shows such as Michael Kors, Anna Sui, and El Tahari. In 2018, she was invited to participate in a field visit to the Rohingya refugee camps of Cox's Bazaar, Bangladesh, and continues her work with UNICEF to Senegal, Africa. Austin released her first capsule collection with the French clothing brand Each Other. I spoke with Austin from her home in LA for a talk about the shut-in, adapting to working in the garage, Miami stories, and digging into this new situation we all find ourselves in. Here's our conversation. It should be good. So hello. Hello. <laughs> yes, it really has taken a pandemic to get us together, but nonetheless, we're here and I'm grateful. Yes, me too. It, it's funny because I I was telling people, a couple of people were talking about scheduling and I teach in Pennsylvania Tuesday through Thursday. So, and the weekends is like family time. So usually when I do a podcast, it's on a Monday or a Friday and I go to the studio, the gallery or wherever the people are. So it's kind of tricky to make that like it's a small window to make it happen right and um oh you but usually now, do it a lot in person oh i 90 before this whole thing like 95 percent are in person wow okay so because it's nice because i mean at least here we ha- we can see each other but it's it's more personable when you're in someone's studio you can right and you're having a conversation right exactly so but since this happened that's obviously not um, an option, but everyone all of a sudden who's been really busy, including myself, it's like, oh, everyone's free. Right. <laughs> it's like, it's actually funny when people, the excuses are like, there's got to be like a whole new set of excuses for people. It's like, I just don't have the time. It's like, well, there's a country mandated stay at home order. <laughs> so I feel like you probably do have the time. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, 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 it's hard to like, if you're not responding to your phone, it's like, wait a minute. Uh, right. What else are you doing? Are you taking like a five hour long bath? 
Exactly. <laughs> the excuses are pretty limited. Yeah. But it's it's been, I mean, I'm talking to a lot of people, which is nice. And and especially given the circumstances, it's, I mean, doing the podcast is always great because I feel like I'm meeting people and connecting with people. And people who listen to it always say, oh, it's nice to feel like I'm, you know, ha- just hanging out with two people talking about art and stuff. But especially now, it, it's great because you, I feel like even though kind of trapped inside you know i'm I'm able to talk to people a couple times a week yeah no it is it is really i mean just the idea of everything is flip-flopping itself right now the meaning of everything the idea our our constructed ideas of things I, i mean everything you know and i think that the introverts are being forced like forced to sort of participate in this extroverted experience of just needing to hold on, you know, and needing to connect with humanity and to, and to sort of, um, have a moment of connectivity in a time where everything feels so isolated, you know, and, and yeah, getting to connect all the things that you haven't had the time to do, we're getting the time to do. And so if nothing else, like that's a beautiful thing. And I'm definitely grateful for that. I've cleaned corners of my place that haven't seen a scrub brush in like <laughs> forever. Me, same, <laughs> same. I mean, I'm, I get in a mode and I can definitely be a, a bit of an anal cleaner, but I, um, I have a friend who's been out of town for months and got stuck elsewhere for the quarantine. And she has this like, you know, sought after top of the line vacuum. Can't believe yeah. these words are even coming out of my mouth. <laughs> and like, I basically found out where her spare key was and got her instructions on how to get into her house, went into her house, took this vacuum and this vacuum and I are like, that's my quarantine boyfriend. Like yeah. I'm just vacuuming ends <laughs> of this apartment, like drawers. I have the vacuum up in the corner. You know, those things, those, those little dust things that sort of end up peering up in the corner and they're oh, not, yeah. they're not spider webs and they're also not like, I don't know what they are. No one knows what those things are. We, but we don't know, but they they're don't disturbing. exist. They are. <laughs> and they, they no longer exist in my apartment. And when nice. I see even a speck of dust, I go after it. I feel a little guilty, actually. I'm like, but what if the dust has feelings? But, yeah, well, you know. it's been there for a long time. It hasn't paid rent for years, so it's Exactly. Time to go. Enough Eviction. with the free tenants, right. <laughs> so, well, in L.A., I mean, do you have, I'm just assuming you have a little more space, right, than well, your, your average it, Brooklyn apartment building? Yeah, I mean, yes, it's interesting. So I have the most amazing studio and that's sort of why I came out to LA was to to be able to have that sort of dreamscape studio which in le- in I've only had it for about let's say uh like 10 months and it's it's really it's massive and it's really special um but i had to abandon ship for right yeah. now um and my apartment you could fit you could fit about five or six of my apartments in my studio. So, I mean, it's all relative in comparison. I actually like, I love living in a smaller, cozier space and then arriving each day at my studio, which is a bit intimidating 
and yeah. sometimes can be daunting. And it's sort of this, this very open that has a, a lot of vast openness to it. Um, but I like to live cozy. And so, I mean, in comparison to your average Brooklyn apartment, yes, I definitely have more room. Um, but it still definitely maintains, I, I, it's just me here. So I definitely have like a level of comfortability and sort of, I like spaces that are lived in and this space I've been in since I moved out to LA. So it's about five years and it's every corner of it has, you know, little traces and nuances of me. So it's, it's it's cozy to be in. I think it's a good dynamic because having the, the cozy living situation, but then when you show up to the studio and it being like, you said a little daunting or the challenge of it is kind of like a nice call to action when you get there to like, okay, I got to, it's like an Olympic swimmer. Exactly. When they get to the pool, it's not cozy. You know, you want to be comfortable at home, but when you get to work, it's like, all right, it's time to get things done. Exactly. And like, I definitely feel that every day. And like, I have a small drive to the studio and, you know, I'm, I'm pumping my music and I'm sort of getting my headspace in the right, in the place that I wanted. And, and I arrive there and I, and I work and I, and it's sort of, um, it does put this, it's a different experience kind of, um, arriving somewhere where there's a stage to perform and yeah. it makes me perform. Um, and I, in New York, I was in a live workspace. Um, mostly I was, you know, that was at this point almost 10 years ago, um, eight, 10 years ago. And I now see that for me, that separation very much kind of lends itself to the separation I feel and in, in the duality of my personalities and yeah. needing sort of to like put on that hat before I walk into that space and also like leave it all on the court as they say. Yeah. It's like I get to come home and return to just being human and being myself and like being soft and being vulnerable. Whereas in the studio, sometimes that, can feel, yeah, daunting. Yeah. But now what's also interesting is being home, I'm working now out of my place here. Yeah. And so the dynamics are shifting again. And um, I'm kind of having, I'm having some flashbacks of what it was like to work and live in the same space. Um, and, you know, what it's really bringing me back to is no excuses. And that keeps sort of playing back in my head. And like every perspective is valid. Every opinion is valid. Um, and that's in reference to the work and whatever comes out, but no excuses. And like my rule for myself has always been like, it doesn't matter what the output is like save the judgment for somebody else, but just make sure that you're giving yourself the space and the kind of no excuse approach to just letting it out. Yeah. It's like just making the work. And I mean, it is an odd predicament and your, your, that idea of the dynamic between home and work makes total sense. Like there's not too many Broadway actors who are sleeping in the theater 
or like movie stars who are like you know camping out on the set it's like you go home you decompress you can empty out from that but i guess i mean i i haven't been watching much tv but i saw that you know late night talk shows they're trying to do it from home and they're basically zooming other people <laughs> and doing their shows and it's really like a strange dynamic but it's kind of interesting to see that and i think when you get pushed into a different kind of working method mm-hmm. the real test is just making the work and then you know it can be it can be maybe it's not great and maybe you don't show it or whatever but it yeah. can be compelling to just be forced out of your comfort zone and make art you know in a different uh, set of circumstances, you know, T- totally. And I feel like that's, that's the test. And ultimately, when I, when, when I look at artists that I admire, um, a lot of times the work of theirs that sticks out to me is not necessarily the greatest hits. Right. And that's both musically and uh, visually. Yeah. It's really the the bodies of work or the albums that fall in between. And I think that this is a moment, you know, every artist wants to go into a quarantine, wants to go into a natural disaster, wants to go into a horrific situation and come out having painted Guernica. And I've spoken to some of my peers, the musicians, the artists, the painters younger than me, my age, and sort of talked talked them through this and ultimately talked myself through this too. But before you can paint Guernica, you have to feel Guernica. And yeah. you have to feel these times. And you have to give yourself the chance to have goosebumps up and down your back and be scared and, and, and full of fear and full of angst and and weird kind of excitement of the unknown and and the horrificness of it all too and I think that especially in the world that we just departed from which was everything is the immediate everything is the now um we're being forced out of that space too and so I'm urging everyone around me including myself if you're in a a a position to create which is privileged in and of itself right now to let yourself feel that that is the to me the most courageous thing you can do and also something that we weren't doing before yeah Um, it's it's like taking it for granted really yeah and everyone's that's floating around a lot right now of like Oh, I took, you know, going to the store or going to see a movie or a restaurant for granted. And I think you're, that's a re- really great point. You know, we take a lot of um, the the sort of privilege to create and to indulge yourself in thinking and creating your own world. And, and that gets kind of like spun around in, a, in circumstances like this. Um, to- totally. And I think that, you know, I've, I keep saying I keep seeing like artists posting memes of like, haha, I didn't know my life was in quarantine until I was actually put in quarantine, which is very funny because a lot of my friends are like, oh, Austin, you're killing the quarantine. Like you've been doing this. And, and in a lot of respects, the life of an artist, both internalized and in the real world is one is an, an experience of solitude. But you don't realize how much that one cup of coffee with, right. with you know, this person or that one interaction with that person um, 
opens up your day and like changes the course of your mood. And those are the little things that I am really appreciating now and missing. Yeah, totally. Because I think that that adage of the artist being um, well suited to quarantine life is, is during the work. Like it's when you go to the studio, like I used to always refer to the studio as the cave. It's like you go in the cave and you work in there and you know, you come out to the real world. But the thing is, is like, you come out to the real world and it's the dynamic between the two. It's not like you're, I mean, no artist works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They would die, you know, it'd be too much. And you need that balance, I think. And it's kind of like, it it reminds me of uh, when you go to see a movie and you come out like a three hour long epic movie and you come out and it takes you like four or five minutes to adjust to real life again, you know, that in between zone, but you need the balance between the two and um, yeah, we're good at going into the cave or the studio and just being in our own thoughts and making our world. But at the end of the day, we want to go home and see people or we want to, you know, interact. And, and basically a lot of what we're doing is reflections on that experience. So when you don't have that experience, it's it's odd, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It's It's really the little things. Yeah, totally. You brought up two things that are near and dear to my heart. One is music. I have a compulsion to always parallel ideas between art with music. Cause I think it's such a great analogy to the creative process of being an artist. And, uh, the other is Guernica is my favorite painting of all time. So I actually taught a whole class on that painting. And oh, wow. I love that. Studied it like crazy. So, um, there's a, there's a lot of great, I, th- I think we probably need to delve into music cause it sounds like you're into it. Did I'm, that start when you were a kid? Were you oh, always yeah. into art yeah. and music? I mean, music for me was the first great escape. Um, I come, I'm one of four children and my older sisters are twins. And growing up, we would, you know, sitting in my parents' station wagon and there's five seats and my brother was older and, and was going through kind of his own struggles and and experiences at a younger age and so you know it was the five of us in a car and of course I'm the youngest so I would get the middle seat and I was always so so miserable sitting in that middle seat it was for for a multitude of reasons and my dad one day handed me the you know my first portable tape player was it the Walkman yeah definitely Handed me the yellow so, Walkman. The Sony Walkman. <laughs> exactly. The yellow and black Walkman. And the al- <laughs> the album on it was a 70s compilation with the so- the tape on it with the song Funky Town. Funky nice. By Town. Lips yeah. Incorporated was the band. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're yeah. welcome. <laughs> so, and then the other song, everybody was Kung Fu Fighting. So good. So good. So I would put on those headphones and that was the beginning of my great escape. And that carried on my whole adolescence. You know, you remember and, and, and my, you know, carpool even like my father um through and through is is a poet himself and and Bob Dylan and and Neil Young and and Pete Townsend and all these and all these guys were were gods to my father and so naturally he 
had me in the car and wouldn't unlock the doors and drove me around and around and around. And by the end of, you know, seven or eight years old, I, I knew pretty much every word to the major albums. I also learned something very important about my memory from music at a very young age, which is when something grasped my soul and engulfed me the way, you know, the four right chords did and and the perfect melody that the idea of memory was not something I had to ever try for. It just literally like washed over me and I knew every word of every song. It could be played twice. And so lyrics, words um, became monumental to me at a young age and then I would say another like monumental kind of moment with music for me was when you have older siblings you you know things before the kids who don't right and I knew about MTV let's say like 95 about 96 and the Californication Red Hot Chili Peppers music video came out And that was the beginning and end of me. I mean, the Red Hot Chili Peppers in general, but Anthony Kiedis and his lyrics and his fusion of of rock and hip hop and pop and funk and soul and his fragmented way of thinking and writing has very much influenced my art and also just kind of the way I started allowing myself to think. Yeah, that's yeah, I can it's that amalgam of so many different styles and, but the energy of it. And I can, I, I sense that you carry that energy. It's great because you seem to carry it in your person, but your work definitely has that energy too. So, I mean, were you drawing like that as a kid? Were you drawing all the time too? It was art. Did that come Um, later or where did that enter? So I was always searching and well, I think the first thing I noticed was that this intense internal dialogue with myself began at a really young age. And I had this really personal, I was sort of, my sisters were twins and my brother was a bit MIA and I was looking for a best friend. And I feel like I formed this relationship with myself that was both at times hostile, but then also really loving and exploratory and open. And I gave myself the go ahead to to just be and just to kind of like figure things out. So I remember that internal internal dialogue happening first. Um, and then after that, I was always searching like a lot of kids are. I wanted to be a ballerina and then a horseback rider and a drummer and a keyboardist and all the things. Um, but it wasn't until I found the dark room in like your standard, I was 12 years old, you know, you have like electives, um, either photography or painting or whatever it is. And at that time, mine was the dark room and I just, I was enamored and I fell in love and all of my portraits starting at all of the work I did starting at age 12. 12 were these sort of deconstructed multiple expo- exposure a bit demented at times but these very intense close-up portraits of myself mm-hmm. um that 
I'm excited actually. I was thinking about them recently and I will take them out soon and sort of like I would love to share them and just it's been an interesting journey. But that definitely I had a teacher in that photography class who I had so many you know, in the dark room, you you overexpose, you underexpose, some things work out, some things don't. There are things that happen in the dark room that are completely out of your control and other things that you can manipulate to be in your control. And I loved the way that that process mimicked life. Um, but I had all these old prints lying around. And one day I was, I had finished my assignments and this photography teacher said to me, handed me some old newspaper and mod mod podge. And, and basically it was like, here now do this on top of the photograph. And so that was the first time I ever started thinking about the layering of mediums. And I started making these collages and I started cutting up these and ripping up these letters I had collected from um, my brother who was in and out of jail at the time. And I found my first emotional release for something that I was feeling internally and that I didn't have anywhere to put. And I found somewhere to put it. And so I think that was the first connection I felt between the visceral and the emotional and that did that was definitely you know kind of an epiphany for me kind of really opened me up as a person to the just to the expansiveness of of how I could not only understand myself but heal myself and and sort of explore through these different dimensions um And then as we do, I took, as teenagers do, I took a million different hilarious phases and courses. Um, But I really think that those years, that 12 years old, 13 years old, 14 years old in the dark room kind of became the, the groundwork from which I kind of exist from. Yeah, it sounds like a light bulb. I mean, no, not pun intended, but a light bulb moment that like connecting the emotional with the creative process it was like this release in a a way that you could get these ideas and feelings out and now did you ever play any music any musical instruments was that ever a part of your youth so i did not i played piano Mm -hmm. i played well i grew up and my father was and is but isn't playing as much now but an amazing pianist I always laugh at that word because it's like, I want to say penis, but it's pianist, but it's pianist. Anyway, um, so (laughs) I, my favorite thing as a child is I would sit under the piano while my dad played um, and I would touch the bottom of, you know, you can sort of, you can touch the 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 bottom of the, yeah, the pedals and you can actually see the keys from the other side of the piano as they're going up and down. I used to put my hands on them. And um, I, w- I was obsessed with the vibrations and I was obsessed with with um, kind of, again, that like physical reaction that I, w- that I would have to music. I played piano a bit as well, but once I fell for the lyrics, I feel like I became more infatuated with words and playing with words and playing on words than I did so much um, the instrumental part of it. Right. I had a relationship where who with uh, somebody who, for age twenty to twenty five, 
um, one of the greatest guitar players that I have ever heard in my life. And that's very unbiasedly. Um, and I felt like he was the music to my sort of visuals. And right. I still carry that with me. Um, I think that in another context, if, if life hadn't, you know, sometimes you subconsciously do or don't do things because you think that role has been taken by someone in your life that does it far superior than you. And I think that's a normal reaction. Like I grew up with twin sisters and one was a singer and an actress and the other was actually a painter, which is funny because I ended up sort of coming out of that anyway. But um, I, I do love to sing and I think that melody no doubt lives within me. And when my paint, when I'm really in flow in my painting, it feels much like that. Yeah. So I think I have found a way to incorporate that musical process into my practice just in a less direct way. Right. Well, it's like that. That's a good point because, you know, you, when you're younger, especially you want to find your lane, you know, if like, if everyone around you is like really great at this sport, you you might have a tendency to say, well, I'll give tennis a try. Well, let's see totally. if I can, you know, make stake my claim in that instead of trying to be the third or fourth best in something else. And I think, especially when you're younger, you know, you you kind of, you know, you try to find your own territory. Yeah. And I would imagine having three siblings is and being the youngest also shapes you in a way. Like I always wonder because you were saying that you felt like you were on your own in a way. And I had a friend who had, I think he had like seven or eight siblings and he was like the second to the last. And when I would go to his house, like his parents, like they were never around. They, I'm sure they stopped caring it like child five, like child six, seven and eight. They could do whatever they want. It was just like, you'll be fine. You know? So I think that kind of, (laughs) I imagine being the youngest of four that you had a little more territory to just explore. Yeah, I think, you know, even just being female alone, like my mother and my sisters were so just from my eyes and they're going to listen to this and be like, oh, here's crazy Austin again. But (laughs) truth is, you know, you can have so many people living under one roof and the the vast amount of perspective that comes from that one roof is just, it's incredible. But, you know, I grew up with these, this idealized kind of perception of, of female beauty and, and female power too. And, And my sisters were such perfect children and so beautiful and kind of this like ideal, idealized kind of just the perfect idea of what I thought a woman, a beautiful woman should be and my mother as well. And I actually really didn't feel like that. Um, And I didn't really, I didn't even really step into the idea of feeling like that until the last few years of my life. Um, And that's always something I really struggled with. So not only was I like, oh, I can't sing. I can't act. I'm not going to draw. I'm not going to paint. Like photography was the first thing I had found in the dark room specifically was the first thing I 
found that was just mine and it was all me. And I always say, I think a lot of who I've become was formed out of who I thought I couldn't be. And while that to some people, it's like, oh, well, you know, then you think of the idea of authenticity and it's like, well, is it really you? Well, yeah, because I've grown into all of, I've grown into be those decisions that I've made. But looking back, when you come from such a big family filled with so much talent and and competition, not necessarily in a negative way, but by nature, when you have sisters that are the same age, there's that dynamic. And then you add in the layer of, of being at least the ones who grew up in the house together were all females. So there's all these different dynamics in which you're really fighting for what's yours. Um, and I think that I have, I wouldn't trade it for the world and it was not easy. Um, it definitely wasn't easy at times growing up with, with such perfect children as my, as my examples of, of who and what to be. But I think ultimately so much of that experience has defined me yeah. and is, and is really kind of made me a very kind of strong individual because I had to go through a lot internally at a young age that I just, I didn't, I didn't share. I just moved through it. Right. Yeah. I mean, imagine if you were only child. Right. Would have been so different. So different. But then there's challenges to that, right? Because you're the center of everyone's world, so you've got to somehow try to be empathetic to someone else's opinion on something. Exactly. I mean, it goes both ways. Are there many a days through my childhood that I scream, I wish I was an only child? Sure. But sitting here at 30 years old and as life kind of moves through these different phases and and your parents move from being your parents to being your peers to then sort of listening to you and what you have to say and and really kind of seeking your opinion and and when you look how all of these roles sort of sort of morph you i i look to my siblings who are now my peers you know at a certain point the age kind of goes out the window and i say like wow i'm so lucky in the midst of all this solitude like I will never, I will never really be alone. Yeah. Yeah. It's a gift. I mean, you pay for it when you're five probably, but you know, it's worth it later. (laughs) It's worth it later. Exactly. But this all happened in Miami, right? Didn't you grow up in Miami? I did. I did. I grew up, which is also like such a wacky and quirky yeah. An amazing place to grow up. But and and there's the idea of Miami and then there's Miami. Um but yeah, I was born and raised in Miami. I was born in Miami Beach and then I grew up kind of more in the suburbs in North Miami Beach. Now Miami. I mean yeah. what what what, <laughs> what the uh, hell? And Florida just in general. And the and the di- dichotomy of Florida, the yeah. difference. I mean when I say Miami, I feel like I'm saying a specific country that I'm from because <laughs> it's like it's truly so disconnected from Florida. In fact, 
I had never, besides Disney, I had never been anywhere in Florida until I was about 18 and my friends started going to some of the state schools in Florida, yeah. and in which case I started visiting and I'd be in Jacksonville or Tallahassee. I was like, what the hell is going like, on this here? Is totally different. But How like, is this what? the same state? <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, growing up, I was, I'd say the biggest advantage of growing up in Miami and the most kind of unique part to my upbringing was my parents are from the Northeast. Um, however, in my class of, let's say, 150, 120 kids, um, and, and even more so in my group of core friends, I was about one of three Americans. Mm -hmm. I, you know, by the time I was 10 years old, the homes that I was having sleepovers at, the the parents that I that were picking me up to go have a play date at their houses, you know, they were from every corner of the world. Miami is is truly um an absolute melting pot in every yeah. sense of it. Uh and I think that that's added so much into my personality and, and sort of my ability to morph and kind of chameleon into these different worlds and and people and places. Um, like something I'll always remember, like I was a really like adorably chubby kid. And I'm still like, that's still my inner, that's my inner core. Like no matter what, that's like how I feel on the inside. And I would totally like want to hang out at certain people's houses based on the snacks I knew they had at their houses. <laughs> so like I always wanted to go to the Colombians' houses because we would eat mango with salt. Oh, like yeah. green mango with salt was like a thing. Or, you know, it's like across the board you go to different – it's like – um that ride at Disney, there's a section it, or it, maybe it's Epcot at Disney where it's like all around the world. Oh yeah. And yeah. that's sort of how my upbringing felt. Like I was just introduced to so many different people from different, like just the socioeconomic backgrounds, the cultural backgrounds. It, it was all mixed and matched, like nothing added up. And that was really beautiful because I feel like I never grew up feeling like anything had to add up. And right. this idea of even just wealth and 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 um, status that I grew to experience more of when I lived in New York um, was very, very much not a part of the conversation in yeah. in both my upbringing and also just in terms of what I was uh, aware of and the evils of the world, the things that divide us. Like it was a really, there was a really naive melody and beautiful kind of way about life in Miami where when you got to the age, the craziness was right there. You know, South Beach was right there. But before you get to that age, you're you're sort of in this kind of beautiful bubble. But that bubble isn't isn't uh, Pleasantville suburbia. You're still yeah. exposed to a lot of real things, but in a and and real people and situations and but it, it in a safe way, in a way that feels sort of safe. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like that kind of exists in New York too for kids 
You know, yeah. my my son and his friends, like it's kind of like it's like a mini little utopia and then they hit a certain age where they're it's not like they start thinking about it, but I feel like culture and society imposes yeah. all these things and then you know, and then it becomes complicated, I guess. But but yeah, it's a real gift. It's a, I always say that travel you learn so much through traveling. And if you're if you can't travel all over the world when you're young, if you're around people from different places, it's a real education and culture and experience, you know, that For you sure. never you never lose. And I think we I mean not to get too well, I, I think problems all, occur yeah. problems occur when people grow up sheltered and only experience one sort of thing and they have bias and you know they're not experiencing others and and that's i think why that's the real split that's going on you know in our yeah. society so i i agree i i mean i definitely agree like i i saw it all i had it all in front of me I wasn't told not to, like, it's not like I was sheltered from it, forbid to do it. I just, I had a very wide perspective of what was going on. And I also think when you grow up the youngest in a big family, you watch everyone and not just your siblings, but their friends, you know, like, yeah. you know, a lot of older people at a young age and you watch everyone make decisions. And then it's like you arrive at the podium and it's your turn to make decisions. And you have, you end up with a really wide range of what you want to do and what you don't want to do based on what you see. Right. Well, what's, so I guess we can steer this towards the art perspective. How did that, does that relate at all to your experience of making art? And when did you start painting and how, what's the vocabulary that you had developed or that you were interested in to start making the work that you're making now? So I started painting initially, initially, although like there are traces of me painting back when I was, you know, 12, 13, 14 on top of photographs. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I had a photographer, I had my job sort of in high school and even college was I was an event photographer and I was the person like shooting and taking your name and, and all the whole thing. Um, and then when I ended up at Parsons, uh, similar to the darkroom experience, I was walking around with physical prints. Mm -hmm. And once I had physical matter in my hands, I started drawing on them. I started drawing on these prints, which is so similar to how I found it, you know, in middle school. And once that occurred, I, I feel like it was a very... So at the time I was shooting fashion backstage, like fashion shows. Um, yeah. And I had all of these prints of these beautiful, again, these beautiful women. And in a lot of ways, like all of these things I thought that I wasn't or couldn't be. And so in a reaction, I think looking back, I was almost like defacing these portraits that I was taking um, in some moments in volatile ways and in some moments just in explorative ways. Um, and then I did it enough that I saw something there beyond the photograph, um, but I was still holding on to it really tight. And it wasn't until a relationship ended 
kind of a moment in in time ended. I was living in New York at the time. And I moved out to Los Angeles and I sort of came here with nothing of the past, all in all. I really came out here with a clean slate. And uh, I... I just began, it actually started from, I brought nothing with me but these collages that I had sort of made in the in-between. And I, from these collages, I was cutting out with an X-Acto knife, the female form. And uh, I was having somebody over to the studio and I knew that they were really into painting, again, mm-hmm. with the performance, which is interesting. I knew they were really into painting and I felt very insecure that I didn't have anything. So I started just drawing minutes before the studio visit, just drawing the cutouts that of the of the collage. And lo and behold, like I finished this drawing as if I was doing my homework, you know, minutes before this friend came in. And that sort of became the the kind of baseline for for how I began the language of my painting in Los Angeles and like where it went from there to now. Um, I think once at first I was sort of just kind of, I was so overwhelmed with what I was kind of experiencing that I was just, I was processing form and I was processing color. And if you look at like my early paintings, they sort, that's what they really are. They're color blocked forms and, and, I'm exploring the idea of that. And then whereas I feel like now I'm conditioned enough where I'm able to be much more of an open vessel and add in a lot of the internal kind of narrative that I feel and 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 sort of back to Anthony Kiedis, back to this idea of, of throwing and the melting pot and growing up in Miami of just throwing it all in this stew and seeing what we can make. I think that with a growing confidence in myself, merely just as a as a human being, as as a woman, really just believing in the decisions I've made now sitting at this vantage point of 30 years, um, I'm able to just be automatic and and let my let like the beast in me take over when it needs to and just and just attempt to to like rock and roll just to let it all out. Yeah. So at the beginning it was more of um I don't want to say orchestrated, but it was a little more contained maybe because what I see in the work now is much more energy and movement and sort of collisions of spaces and ideas and feelings into a mass that becomes like its own sort of like form that's probably you but it's just expressed in paint you know but in the beginning was it a little more like you're just putting your feet in the water and then it took a while to develop that language totally I I think that I was timid and insecure and insecure both in myself and also in what I was doing and and so wanting something to hold on to and so wanting something to express myself and and, you know, there have been people, as everybody has in their story, people 
along the way who sort of knock you down and for a moment they might win and you got to pick yourself back up. And and I had that happen to me a couple of times, as everyone does, more than a couple of times. Um, but I think when I first started, it was very much a game of of trying to navigate the ways around myself. Like I was very much in the way. I was getting in the way of it all. Um, and even now, like what's so exciting is like, I, I know what lives inside of me and I've come a long way. And so much of my work, like whatever shows, whatever is on the drawing or on the painting is one thing, but the psychological journey inward that I've taken and I'm constantly taking, that's where my work really lies. And, and if energy is what shows in it now, that's a beautiful thing. I couldn't possibly explain sort of what the experience has been like to get over myself. And I think that for a lot of artists, that's so much of the battle. It's just like, get over yourself, you know? And so I'm still figuring that out, but I feel way more, I just feel connected, a connectedness to my practice and what I'm making where it doesn't really feel like a practice because it's just kind of me. And like to an outsider, it might be super fragmented and super all over the place. And, and that's okay because that's partially me. Yeah. And and like that level of self acceptance, you know? Yeah, totally. I, I think that's a really interesting idea of the, uh, the sense of time that's needed, you know, to sort of find that voice. And I, I think it's so different than everything else because, you know, there's this thought that in art, I mean, I think it was Hokusai said that like, I, I didn't make a good piece of artwork until I was like 90 some years old or something, you know, this idea that, you know, as you age, you become more wise with experience or something and you get better. And then certain people think that's a cliche, but I think it's different in art than it is say in music where energy and kind of, I don't know. There's a, you know, there's a lot of bands that just that first record is just, they hit it. And I feel like in art, it's not like that. It seems like it really is like there needs to be some time and there needs to be some thinking out of things. That's not to say early work doesn't have its energy and something great about it. But I think it's like wine in a way where it like ages well. And you know, the more you do it, there's just maybe, or at least I feel like, you just have this voice inside that says, you know what, like, screw it. Like, I'm just going to do what I want to do and I'm going to work the way I want to work. And it's less about the effect and like what I'm making for others. And you start to just get in a pattern of really wanting to interest yourself and, and, and build upon your language and then it gets stronger. But it's, I don't think it's like that for a lot of other things, you know? I don't think so either. And I think you touched on something important, which is like this idea of like the conversation between you and the others, you know? Yes. And and I yeah. think that I don't care what artists you speak to, if they don't admit to the third person sitting in the room, they're just not being honest because like when you're young and you're, you know, everybody's different. There's some people who come out of the womb drawing and like they're draftsmen and they're attached to sort of it's across the board, you know, but I think that when you're in, especially in the, in the world we're living in right now, creating work 
in a world that's already so on display, each person is their own channel for, right. for, for what you will, you know? And I think that this, this idea of performance is a really hard one to escape. Um, and until you escape it, you're kind of making shit work and it could look amazing. It, that, that like it's, it's where we don't live in a world where it's impossible to figure out how to make a, a quote unquote good painting. I think that that's possible, but, and for some people that's enough, you know, on some yeah. people they can leave the studio at night and they made a quote unquote good painting and that's enough for me until, until my soul is matched internally and externally. And I feel like there's no secrets between me and the canvas. I'm just, and that may very well take until 95 years old. I just know that I personally will not be fulfilled, which I'm grateful for because I don't, I don't really want to be fulfilled right now. And, and I'm all, I'm, you know, I think that escaping the critic is, is, you know, it's half the battle. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's, it's funny that idea of, um, you know, that, that everyone has their channel now and in this, everything's broadcast and I mean, like Andy Warhol really was like Nostradamus, wasn't he? Totally. (laughs) Really saw that coming. And, um, Oh, he would be all over Instagram. He would have loved it. He would have owned it. Totally (laughs) owned it. Yeah, he kind of had that going before it even existed. In Absolutely. Life. But yeah, I, I think, you know, the that feeling of, of never being satisfied is really key. It's funny because uh, when I teach, I think there's a lot of times where people are seeking out the answer. It's like you're trying to figure out if this is right or if I got it or what. And if you ever, I, I'm always saying like if you ever nailed it, if you ever answered the question, it'd be over. So you wouldn't yeah. really make anything anymore. Yeah. But that's kind of like life. You can never figure it out. And that's what keeps you motivated and keeps you going. You know, that none of the things that you really love, whether it's love or whether it's, you know, like art or creative idea, whatever, it can be figured out. So you, you stay in it, you know, otherwise it's just, you get it, you're done. And then what's the point, you know? It's totally true. I have to keep reminding myself that in the midst of trying to find love, uh, in the middle of the quarantine, you know, Jeez, oh, that's a gotta, gotta keep that in mind. But yeah, you are totally correct. That's like trying to find a four leaf clover on the <laughs> North pole. Totally. <laughs> Although I did see someone talking about, um, online, <laughs> like trying to do maybe zoom dates and stuff. Yeah. Like love in the time of quarantine. It's like a whole thing. Oh my God. Uh, I, I feel <laughs> Sometimes I feel like being at my age is, you know, like, oh, I'm getting older, you know, but there's certain things that happen. You're like, oh, I'm kind of glad I missed that. You know, you're right. Like, Like, I'm a little happy I'm over that. Right. Like, I wouldn't want to be in eighth grade with Instagram. You know, like, I'm glad I missed that. Same. (laughs) I'm glad like I just passed Facebook came out more or less when I was in high school, Mm -hmm. which was bad enough. I mean, you know. Yeah. But I'm just like Instagram and that would have been a nightmare. Thank God. I know. Imagine like you could be judged 24 hours a day instead of just school hours. 
<laughs> no, it makes me so I my heart hurts for I did a show recently, not recently at this point, about two years ago at my old I went to the same lower school, middle school, and high school. Mm-hmm. And I, when I had my uh, solo show at Bill Brady in Miami, I did a show at that school as well oh, with yeah. another series of paintings. So I was just sitting in the courtyard that I sat in my whole life, and I was watching all these kids coming out of class with their phones. And my heart was honestly hurting for, you know, obviously I empathize less with boys as we do. Right. But... I was just, you know, the pressures already to just, to just be beautiful and look like this and be like that, that already existed when I was younger. But now with Instagram and with all these, you know, ideas of, of, of beauty and how one should look and sexiness and like I don't want to see any more 11 year olds in short shorts and like nor should you. Right. Yeah, but you know what? I feel like this always happens with generations. They're just growing up in it, so they're, right. they don't know anything. They don't I mean, know. Yeah. They don't know. True. I mean, like, our great-grandparents were, like, du- ducking bombs and diving into ditches and stuff. So, you know, it's, all rel- it's a relative, I guess. <laughs> right, as <laughs> we will bad. speak of the great quarantine of 2020. Exactly. Yeah. But, yeah, it's, you know... and. and talking to younger people too like every generation you're gonna have that life-changing event you know and uh this is definitely one of you can see them so clearly these these ones you know oh yeah i mean 9-11 for my generation i feel like you know ours was the first right that i can recall where i'm like oh yeah well actually i have to be kind of honest uh Bill Clinton getting naughty naughty in the White House was like one of the first things I personally remember. But besides that, 9-11, you know, you know where you were. You yeah. know, the cla- I knew the classroom I was in, the teacher, who I was sitting next to, like every detail of that of that event. And, and this is this isn't this isn't, you know, one day. This is, no, it's like a bigger. Yeah, bigger thing. we don't even know the repercussions that this will hold yet on not only memory but generations, actions, what we carry in our emotional DNA. You know, my my grandmother, who's ninety seven, who's more or less like my best friend. She is a child of the Great Depression. She uses a Ziploc bag for her sandwich and she uses that same Ziploc bag every time she eats a sandwich. And it's not because she can't afford another Ziploc bag. It's because it's just innately, it's like inherently in her. Oh yeah, it's ingrained, you know? Yeah, exactly. We're going to be Purelling for the rest of our, like... Ever. It's just going to be that way. But what I'm hoping that happens from this... Is like like you were saying these these memories that are etched in are usually events. Like for me, I'm old enough that like the Challenger explosion was big because we had like an assembly and we all went and saw that um, space shuttle blow up and it was just like wow, you know, yeah, you couldn't forget it. Like as a young kid, and but they're always events. Like nine eleven was event, but this is something like you're saying stretches out, you know. But really, all the while, all these events that are happening that are etched into our minds because they're so impactful in a moment, like 
the global issue is bigger than all that and it's slowly yeah. creeping up on us yeah just like this one kind of slowly crept up you know and people were like oh it's fine it's like the flu and yeah and next thing you know everyone's in locked in her house yeah and i i'm hoping that people open their eyes up to the whole i mean i know people know about the environment but but do they know things are going to go down if it if the ship doesn't get turned around you know so and maybe I mean, that can happen. i don't believe in anything by chance i just i don't and i feel like this if nothing else and and it doesn't matter who or what you believe in like signs or signs and warnings or warnings and like this is a monumental sign and a monumental warning that the way in which we were moving, the speed at which we were moving was not right. Something was not working. And so now it is, it is us who will either take the time to look across the board at what we need to change, what we're hurting, what we all, all of the things or we'll look at the sign and turn our heads and that's on us, you know, yeah. but I think that the warnings are there and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a crazy time. It really is. Um, I'll make a smooth transition. Okay. Do it. I love a smooth <laughs> transition. Um, are you, are you able to work like work, work at home or what do you, are you doing any painting or is it mostly work on paper or uh, performance so, art? <laughs> definitely performance art. Didn't know. I'm basically going to come out of this with a new career that I did not plan for at all. But it turns out you uh, quarantine yourself alone for this long and anything can happen. Um, so I started this project. It's not so much a project. It's just like something I began doing while I was quarantined in my own life before the mandated one, which is I started writing letters to myself on these postcards. So like I began using like the front of postcards as just paper to draw on. Mm -hmm. And then I started writing on the back of postcards and then I started mailing them. It started a few Valentine's days ago where I would mail them back and forth from my house to my studio. Mm -hmm. Like almost like I don't need anyone to send me letters or flowers. Like I'm going to send myself love letters. <laughs> and that has really progressed over this quarantine. I'd say I'm about like, 75 letters in or something like that nice. so i definitely upstairs i do that and like in my apartment i i draw a lot i paint on paper i i write these letters um but then kind of right when the quarantine began i i have a a really small like not even a one-car garage otherwise i would park in it but this small space that's supposed to be a one-car garage and it's been filled with boxes since i moved here five years ago and i opened it up on like the first day of quarantine and i was like huh like this is bigger than some people's new york studio what can i do with this so before it went really heavy on lockdown I moved all of those boxes to my big empty studio and I moved all, not all of them, but I moved some canvases and a bunch of art materials into this empty garage. And I've been over the last like 10 days converting it into a full blown like little studio. And today was, 
Yeah. And today was like the first day that I sort of was like done with the work. Mm-hmm. Kind of like I had to find the right, you know, anchors to to screw into cement and all these different things. And and today was the first day that I was like, wow, like I'm going to make these paintings in here, even if it were to clear up tomorrow at this point. Like I set this up, I'm going to make these paintings in this garage. I am going to give this moment a chance to be remembered through my work. And I'm going to sit in this and experience what it's like to sort of, sort of put yourself in a box, like both figuratively and literally. Um, So I'm, I've paint, I painted a little this weekend. Some days it feels like the most important thing in the world. And other days it seems absolutely pointless I think a lot of uh, artists are going back and forth with that. Yeah, Um, Creativity is a privilege. You know, I I said it earlier and it's one that, again, sometimes feels like the most important mission a human being can be granted to have. And then at other times it feels like not a priority. You know, how can this be a priority? How can this be important when we're watching the world fall apart where people can't, you know, feed their children? They, they, the the mother who worked so hard to get her, her family off the streets is now ending up right back on there. Like all these, all these things roll through your mind and you're like, how could a painting correlate into, into being part of the solution? Um, but Again, one of the really amazing things about the quarantine is I've been talking to so many artists who are having solo shows at the Bronx Museum and who are 23 years old and, you know, just playing in the paint for the first time. And the overall consensus I've gotten is is there is an intangible energy that lifts the spirit from the act of creating. And if you can do it, you do it. Yeah, totally. Well said. You know, so I'm I, it's just so I'm trying I, to go with that. Yeah, I think do you, it. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and and writing a little bit. And I've I remember writing about like why creativity is so important, even though it's completely non-essential. And I think it's because you don't need it to survive necessarily. Like you need food and water, but. Right. It's kind of what defines us as humans. It's kind of what separates us from most other things is that we will actually sit in a room and make pictures and think about things in that kind of like other dimension. You know what totally. I mean? And and I think there's there's a beauty to that. And it's it makes since it's so intrinsic to us to to have that compulsion and that urge to be creative or at least to digest creative creative forms of expression that it must be kind of our reason for being in a way, you know, has to be. So I'm just going to go with that. I mean, that sounds like a good excuse, right? To just I'm keep painting while that. the world's, bur- world's burning down and <laughs> rearranging the, uh, the Picassos on the Titanic. <laughs> that, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking of Picasso and I think of Picasso all the time and, you know, agree with me, don't agree with me, like him, hate him. I don't really care. He, did the bravest act of all, which others would would coin as the most selfish and pointless act of all. And that is creating relentlessly through it all. Yeah. And 
when I'm sitting at the, you know, at 95 years old, God willing, I hope that I can say that for myself and I, and not even for the purpose of myself, but more for the purpose of a survey of what this period of life has been like. And I think every artist hopes for that, that in some way they can reflect the times or, or tap into, to the, the feeling of right now. And I don't know, try or die. Yeah. (laughs) Or try, try dying. (laughs) Get rich. Or just don't die. Yeah. Or get rich. Get rich or try dying. Exactly. (laughs) I like that. I like that. That's good. Um, one more question. Do you listen to anything else besides the Chili Peppers in the studio? <laughs> well, the Chili Peppers don't, is Don't more say John Frusciante solo. <laughs> I won't, but God, it's so good. It is really And is can good. you believe he's back? He's back. It's really, it's, a, you know, good things are happening. But listen, <laughs> Chili Peppers, because, you know, I'm so embarrassing. It's like every, every talk I do, I'm like, yeah, they're not Chili Peppers. That is definitely like the adult, you know, a, a period of time in my life. Um, in, a in the present day, my music taste is extremely eclectic. I mean, my playlist, some of them are public. I'll actually send you some are as wild and as all over the place as I might seem to be from the outside. Um, but I would say that in the end of the day, like I'm, I'm rock and roll. Like yeah. I, my soul is rock and roll, like Zeppelin, Van Morrison. Um, you know, sometimes I wish that I, what could, like could step out of the emotion of being tied to every word and every lyric, because I think it's, can be sometimes overwhelming and, and, the the intrinsical ties between music and art are, are inseparable, especially if you're somebody who listens while you paint. Um, right. But growing up in Miami, like hip hop and the in the in the spirit of hip hop definitely has been ever present in me uh, my entire life. So, yeah. you know, I hate to say. Kanye West, but like he's been a major musical figure in my life forever. That's yeah. for sure. Of course, we like early Kanye, but you know what? That's the thing. I I I love all. I love it all because I respect any artist, even if it's not my. I can separate sort of what they're making and the person who's making it. Like right. I respect somebody who grows and morphs and changes and takes chances and speaks in tongues and, and you know, is, is free to be mad and I'm right. attracted to that. So I think that, I think that by nature hip hop is, is definitely um, prevalent, but I think like for me, I always wanted to be the girl Led Zeppelin was singing about and Led Zeppelin. I wanted to be both. <laughs> both and I at think the same I, time. I wanted to be both. I wanted to be the girl with the flower in her hair. And then I also wanted to be, you know, ripping that solo. And so, Definitely. yeah. So I don't know, somewhere in between, but I, I, lo- I truly love it all. 
Well, I mean, thanks to dad, right, for all those classic rock jams in the car. I mean, what if that was Kenny G instead? (laughs) Oh, my God. I really owe it all to him. And it's different when you have a a Bob Dylan loving dad because Bob Dylan's heavy. You know, it's heavy and it's not it's a it's. It's a handful. It's a lot to digest. But if you can digest Bob at a young age, you have a lot tackled. You have a lot of understanding of both life and music that I think has has been able to carry with me. So, you know, it's funny because I, I grew up with so much music in the house and like, you know, this is a big thing. Not a lot of Bob Dylan, but I feel like the heavy dose of Muddy Waters that I got probably was similar. Maybe a little less totally. poetic and, um, you know, impressionistic and a little more straightforward. But I feel Love like Muddy, Muddy Waters, gets yes. to the heart of things, you know. Couldn't agree more. And Motown. Same, same, but different, stuff. you know. Love yeah. Motown. You know, I love... I love um I love soul music. I love I really actually love more in my later years I love classical music. And yeah. then also there's like the Miami and me where like I will definitely put on some like dirty early 2000s house music and like rock out to David Guetta and like own it. Right. <laughs> kind I mean, of what's, I, what's not the like? <laughs> really nothing. Really That's nothing. True. And I love um I love French music, I love Spanish music. Like there's nothing sexier than than singing in in melody and lyrics that I do and also don't understand. Yeah, a little bossa nova. Absolutely. See, I this is why I love doing these podcasts because I would not have known that I had so many parallel things in common with you. Totally. <laughs> I know. And that, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like we, we, like I said, we have our own channels now and we're like, we're on display, but what we're displaying is not at all who we necessarily are. It's the, it's the idea we've constructed in our mind of who we should be in order for people to be able to digest us. But isn't it amazing that we all kind of know that? Like everyone will say to you, oh, well, that's the public persona and that's not the real person or, oh, that's a little bit affected like what you see here, there. But at the end of the day, that's what people think of the people until they actually meet them and talk to them. It's not like they're like, well, I'm not really sure what they're like. It's like, oh, no, I know that person from seeing their pictures and posts and they're like this, you know? Right. And you never know until you talk to people. Exactly. People don't know how much of a jerk I am until they listen to this podcast. (laughs) Of course. It's been so so great talking to you. Likewise. Um, Well... I guess there's not going to be any shows up in the very near future. What do you, what do you, do you have any things? I had going a up? lot that got wiped off the map. Unfortunately, I was supposed to leave on April 29th for a residency in Southern Italy. Oh. Um, yeah, which will be rescheduled, but you know, I'm more so just hurting for Italy right now. Yeah. And obviously like my summer painting in a bikini and like, you know, drinking Aperol spritzes every 45 minutes, but that will be, that will happen later on. Um, 
as of right now, I do my next kind of thing that I'm hoping will still happen is a solo exhibition in London, October 5th at nice. Carl Costial Gallery, which I'm hoping October, God willing, you know, we're okay and we're cleared up and that happens, which would be really exciting. Um yeah. And that's kind of like the next sort of thing. And then a lot of things happening in between. But what I'm actually excited about in this moment is the opportunities that I think will arise and that we can create from the situation we're in. Agreed. Yeah. I think that will be, um, that's kind of like the light at the end of the tunnel here. Because it's totally. a weird long tunnel we've never been in before. So No, and it feels like we're taking steps every day further into a a dark tunnel where we do not see the light yet and that's very disheartening yeah and so i think that by doing things like what we're doing right now and and seeing artists coming together and and i think a lot the world will never be the same but i think with that will come a lot of really beautiful opportunity and connectivity that will be new Yes, totally. I mean, look at Guernica. I mean, that was a painting about a firebombing of will- women and children while the, you know, while men were like off fighting a war and they just destroyed the town. And like that was what came out of that, that painting and that realization. And, you know, there, there can be some beautiful things that come out of it, you know? Absolutely. And again, like what we, what I said earlier, we have to give ourselves the chance. Totally. You know, we have to give ourselves the moment to, to internalize it all and then sort of spit it back out. Yeah, well, nothing forces you to slow things down a little bit than a lock-in. Than a mandated good lock-in, <laughs> totally. That'll, that'll do it. Well, um, I, thanks so much for the late night chat. It was really great. Yeah, me too. This, this, I needed this. So we made it happen. We We did. And we'll always remember that it was the quarantine that brought us together. It's almost better that we didn't, we didn't do it before, you know? Right, right. No, yeah, this is, this has been really great. So thank you. Really has. Thank you so much, Brian. Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find more about the podcast at soundandvisionpodcast.com or follow on Instagram at soundandvisionpodcast. You can find out more about my work at brianalfred.net or at Alfred Studio. Be sure to check out a new podcast that I started called Brave New World. It's a little less of me talking to artists and a little more of creative people from all walks of life talking about their experience in a pandemic environment. You can find it on iTunes and Spotify. It's called Brave New World Podcast. Um, Please leave a rating and review on iTunes if you can. It really helps get this out there to more people. Uh, Many thanks to Michael Lovett for the intro, Lolotone for the intro-outro music, and to Austin for taking the time out to talk to me from Los Angeles. Many thanks to Frederick's Canvas for their support and Golden Artist Colors for their continued support. Hope you're all doing well, still making things and adapting to the new state of the world. I'll be coming back with more and more episodes. Still got plenty of 
artists lined up even though it's over zoom we're still doing these so uh stay tuned and thanks for listening